I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is With All Your Mind. Welcome back. Um, It's another beautifully sunny day here in central Pennsylvania. And I know my boys, well, I hope my boys are going to be eager to go outside this afternoon after their naps. I'm not so eager because I want to get some stuff done inside. But we have a little playground right across the street from us. And my younger son, Eli, really loves swinging on the the swings. So he doesn't care so much to actually do anything at the playground. He just wants to sit in the swing and have me push him. So I'm not always so eager to get out there, but I'm thinking we're going to do it today. So, okay, Uh, we are done with our little three-part series on textual criticism. And just so you know, textual criticism usually feels pretty dense. It usually feels kind of overwhelming and way too academic. So hopefully I didn't (laughs) do that for you guys. Hopefully it was nice and digestible and bite-sized pieces that we could all get something out of it and understand it. And just so you know, textual criticism is a really big deal for New Testament stuff because there are so many New Testament manuscripts. That's something that I should have mentioned in the last episode, that the reason why you talk about textual criticism is because there are so many New Testament manuscripts. There aren't nearly so many of the Old Testament. There's still a decent chunk. It's not like we have like two, but it's a bigger deal for the New Testament because there are so many different manuscripts and you won't hear it as much. You'll more of hear of theories about authorship for the Old Testament because the Old Testament just doesn't have as much information around it. There's not as much history to lean on and there's not so many documents or manuscripts to study and analyze. So today we're not doing textual criticism. Today we're going to do (laughs) things that are and are not from the Bible. Because, you know, when we went through textual criticism, you might have noticed that we've run through lots and lots of ways that the Bible is not nearly as consistent as you might like or feel comfortable with. You might have found some things that you assume to be true, and now you're questioning them. But it's all okay. (laughs) It's still a divine book. It just has human authors. And God's okay with that. And so because God is okay with that, I'm okay with that too. But now we're on to a related but different topic. The way it's related is that we've all had assumptions about the Bible, how it was made, what certain verses meant, and how we were supposed to interpret them. You know, especially like that, not one jot or tittle from the word of God will pass away. That verse just keeps on popping back into my head about how am I supposed to interpret that verse now? What did God mean when he had that verse put in there? And it's things like that that I like to think over and over again and try and imagine from God's perspective instead of using my assumptions or things that I've been taught before. So another assumption that we've made, maybe you have made, maybe not, is things that are in the Bible that aren't. There are lots of Christian ideas and good principles that may have been accidentally or on purpose taught through history as being a part of the Bible, and they're not. 
they're good ideas, but they're not actually in the Bible, or they're very similar or very related to an idea that's in the Bible, but they're not the exact same thing. So we're going to go through a short list, six different things, and I'm not going to tell you yet whether they're in the Bible or not. So six different things that are and are not in the Bible. And we're going to do a quiz first so that you can see what have you assumed was in the Bible and were you right? And what what did you get fooled on? Or what did you have a mistaken idea of, right? So here's six phrases. And I want you to use your two hands to give your answers, okay? And I did this myself to check and make, make sure this made sense. If you think this phrase is in the Bible, put up a finger on your right hand, okay? So however you count, if it's from your pinky first or from your thumb first, if you think a phrase is from the Bible, put up a finger on your right hand. It's right. If you think it's not in the Bible, put up a finger on your left hand, okay? So we have six items, so you know at least one of them's going to be on each hand, okay? Number one, put up a finger on your right hand if you think God can't be in the presence of sin is in the Bible. Number two, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Number three, the phrase born again. Number four, God helps those who help themselves. Number five, cleanliness is next to godliness. And number six, quiet time. Okay, I'll go through that one more time just in case you missed one. Number one, God can't be in the presence of sin. Number two, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Number three, born again. Number four, God helps those who help themselves. Number five, cleanliness is next to godliness. And number six, quiet time. All right, so how many fingers do you have up on your right hand that of those six phrases, how many did you think were in the Bible? And I honestly have no clue how you'll do on this kind of quiz. Um, I, I knew the answers before I made up the quiz, so I couldn't do it to myself. But only one of those phrases is in the Bible. So we're going to go through them and see where did we get these ideas if they're not exactly biblical, okay? So let's start with the one that is in the Bible, and this one might be an easy one for you. This phrase appears mostly in John 3, but also one time in 1 Peter 1. Jesus uses this phrase, born again, when talking to Nicodemus about how to imagine or think about the kingdom of God. He says you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus didn't understand this phrase, and he took it very literally. He's like, uh, how can you go back into your mom's womb? So it was new, at least, to Nicodemus. Um, but it's become a very fundamental phrase, especially in evangelical Protestant Christianity, to mean you must personally realize the weight of salvation is through accepting Jesus as a personal savior. That's in contrast to being born into Christianity like through baptism at infancy, or being a part of a religion because of a tradition or a family connection to it, which is the way a lot of other religions work. Evangelicals specifically connect being born again to an experience with the Holy Spirit, and that's sometimes called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as opposed to a water baptism of a baby. So it's a very evangelical idea, evangelical Protestant idea. Orthodox Christians and Catholics would not use this terminology. 
And it's a little intense how widespread and assumed this phrase is that it should be known everywhere, considering it only appears in the Bible a grand total of three-ish times, depending on your translation. So only in two chapters and only maybe three times total. It's a very big phrase, very well used, but only in certain circles. And it's only in two chapters in the whole Bible. Okay, so that's the one, that's the only one that's in the Bible. All right, so if you were like, no, there's more. Nope, that's it, (laughs) that's it. And don't worry, there's some that are very similar to concepts in the Bible. So you might think I'm splitting hairs, but you you can judge, Let's, let's do it. All right, the five phrases that are not in the Bible. We're gonna do the easiest one first, or at least the easiest one for me. Cleanliness is next to godliness. This was one that isn't so culturally appropriate anymore, but during the 1800s, this was a really big one. Uh, I was reminded of this one when I fished a book out of my bookshelf that I I hadn't looked at in years. Um, My mom came over one day and brought William Bennett's Book of Virtues. I think it was published in the 90s, and it was a part of this push by evangelical Christianity to get back to virtues kind of in a classical sense. And this book of virtues has some pretty good stories in it. So I've actually started reading it to my boys. And I especially like Aesop's fables. Um, They have virtues, but they usually involve like animal characters. So they're pretty fun stories. Um, But this book and a lot of these stories make more sense uh, being read in the 40s, in the 1940s than they do in the 2020s. Um, The language of them is kind of difficult. I'm often paraphrasing for my boys. And then some of the concepts are just very foreign for our time. So there were several poems about cleanliness. And I was a little surprised at first, but then I remembered, no, like our generation especially really tries to distance um, physical cleanliness from anything spiritual. You know, kids need to get dirty, that kind of phrasing. It's just very different from books and things like this from the 40s. Um, So here, here's one stanza from a poem. The idle and the bad, like this little lad, may love dirty ways to be sure, but good boys are seen to be decent and clean, although they are ever so poor. (laughs) So you can see that being good is equated with being clean. But where did this idea come from? And Oh, and this poem, by the way, is written in about 1810, I couldn't find a specific date, um, but it's about 1810. And it was written by the same lady who wrote the words to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star with her sister. So just a fun fact there. But it turns out that John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, you know, the Methodist church, was the guy that said this first in a sermon in 1791. And the Bible does talk about cleanliness a lot, especially if you go into books like Leviticus. Um, there's a lot of laws about cleanliness and cleanliness in general. Like Jesus talks about the Pharisees being like a dirty dish where they wash the outside and forget to wash the inside. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about cleanliness, but very often it's an analogy for spiritual cleanliness. So while the idea of cleanliness is an important concept and is in the Bible, (laughs) the exact phrase And practically equating cleanliness with godliness is most definitely not. (laughs) And using the principle of cleanliness to pressure children into cleaning up is not there either. 
I understand the desire to try to pressure children into cleaning up by talking about it in terms that aren't necessarily very healthy all the time. Um, but yeah, cleanliness is next to godliness. It's kind of tangential to the Bible. The Bible does talk about hard work and taking care of yourself, but it does not equate your physical appearance with godliness. Definitely not. Okay, so on to the next one. God doesn't give us more than we can handle. This one, this is a pet peeve of mine in general, uh, kind of empty encouragement. This one is often used as a, like a nice piece of encouragement, kind of just a good phrase to use that basically means, don't worry, friend, you can handle this situation because God wouldn't make anything in life too hard for you. And it's supposed to be encouraging that you can get through this because of course you can. God wouldn't make it insurmountable. And there are several problems with this phrase, but let's look at the verse that spawned the idea. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And this is what it says. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So the context of the verse is temptation or testing. They're the same word in Greek, so it's just context determines which way we use it in English. Testing, temptation. I think there's another word that's pretty much the same. But yeah, so the verse is saying when you're feeling tempted, it's normal. But there is a way to not sin in this situation, even if you're really, really tempted to. The verse is not general encouragement that you'll escape this really hard situation, whatever it is, without losing anything, without anxiety, without lost sleep, without lost money, without any loss. And I think that's how the phrase is usually used. It's used to mean you'll get through this okay. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes we get through a situation, a hard situation with more, feeling better, uh, feeling more accomplished, with good relationships and focus and purpose in life. But other times we lose and we lose big. And sometimes that feels like more than we can handle. But even if we lose a lot, what God promises is that he'll always provide a way out of sinning in that horrible, awful situation. And faith is leaving the rest to God. Okay, so that's, that's a really big difference between oh, don't worry, friend, you'll get through this just fine, to don't worry, God will provide a way out of sinning out of the situation. That's a big difference, okay? All right, the next one. This is, this is an interesting one for me. God can't be in the presence of sin. This is very interesting because it's, I feel like it's one so taken for granted and so normal to hear that you might feel really surprised to hear me say it's not in the Bible. I actually started thinking about this concept a year or so ago, and it's been stuck in my head ever since. So I started to do some research. And there are lots of little and big verses that have led to this idea. But here's a simple way to debunk it <laughs> really fast. Um, if we look at each part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We've seen each part of the Trinity in the presence of sin, right? God with Satan in the book of Job, God in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve after they sinned, 
uh, the Holy Spirit indwelling Samson, the Holy Spirit indwelling basically any Christian ever. And here's a really simple one, Jesus walking the earth. Okay. So not to mention how God will sit on his throne and judge the nations at the end of time. Um, he's not going to be doing that on a conference call. <laughs> he's going to be right there. There's going to be a lot of sin in front of God at the final judgment, right? That that one's just not going anywhere. So, so where do we get this idea? One verse, and I found several that really seem to support this idea, but one verse that it seems to come from is a really obscure one is Habakkuk 1.13. And this is what it says. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So it's just kind of like, oh, God can't even look at sin. That makes sense. You know, he's a holy God. Um, there must be something that is so repulsive or repelling, not repulsive necessarily, but kind of just pushes him away automatically. That makes sense. Like It just generally makes sense. But there's another one. There's a really big one that I didn't realize before I started doing research for this. So I'm really glad. I, I'm i so glad I do this podcast, guys, because I learned so much from it. I have these ideas and I have half-baked theories about why things are the way they are. And then I do research and then I know for sure. <laughs> so this is one where I found out a really good reason for why we think God can't be in the presence of sin. But it's not true. So when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many take that to mean that when Jesus takes the sin of the world, God automatically must shut off communication and fellowship with Jesus. And it, that makes sense, right? It's like God, oh, there's a song. I should have looked it up. It's the father turns his face away. The, the wounds which mar the chosen one have many brought to glory. I think that's how it goes. I don't know what song it is. You can tell me later. Anyway, um, it's kind of like when Jesus had sin on him, God had to turn away. And that's how we interpret the darkness at the time of the crucifixion and the earthquakes. It's almost like the breaking in fellowship because of sin between Jesus and God the Father produces physical, uh, geographical consequences. So that's that's the connection we usually make in our brains. And while God may have shut off communication and fellowship with Jesus at the cross, we, we pretty much know that happened. It's not because he can't be in the presence of sin. It can't be because we know he can be in the presence of sin. So it must be for another reason that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It must be for another reason. So did you know that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is a quote from Psalm 22? And perhaps Jesus was referencing this psalm because it's a messianic psalm. If you have the time, it would be really good if you're not driving, <laughs> if you're not uh, washing dishes, whatever you end up doing. If you have the time, it would be really good to read this whole psalm. It's not that long, but we should especially know the second line to the psalm. So it starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the second line is, why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. The context is, God, why aren't you saving me? The abandonment, the abandonment, the break in fellowship, 
is in communication. We know that Jesus and God were not communicating. That line tells us that. But also, the abandonment is in rescuing him from the situation. Jesus had just prayed (laughs) to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, please take this cup from me. Please don't make me do this. And he said, but your will be done, but I'll do it if if that's what you want. So he's not changing his mind here. He's not saying, oh, I'm okay with this now. He's saying, why don't you please save me, right? That, that much is pretty clear. So the rest of it, it's a, it's a really interesting psalm if you remember that it's a messianic psalm and that Jesus starts it off on the cross. And, you know, we know that at one point he had to have a sponge with sour wine on it brought up to him so that he could talk because he was so dehydrated that he couldn't move his tongue maybe. I, I I started wondering when I was researching this, would Jesus have kept on quoting this psalm? Would he have recited this whole psalm if he had more energy and wasn't, you know, dying on the cross? Would he have kept going if he'd had energy? I don't know. But there's a lot more in this psalm. Uh, It has a lot of descriptions that we realize now are prophetic about Jesus when he's being tried and crucified, but there's also a lot of beautiful descriptions of God and him being enthroned before his people and being trusted. And there's also really horrifying pictures of near despair and pain and shame. And then the psalm ends with praising God for all the faithfulness and goodness that he'll bring and that people will tell their children about it. So there's praise at the end. So when we look back at Jesus quoting this psalm while on the cross, you really have to wonder, is he saying that God has turned his back on him and he's trying to help us realize that God can't be in the presence of sin? (laughs) No, probably not. That doesn't seem right at all now. Or is he expressing his despair, his pain, his shame, while also praising God with what little energy he must have left? right? So that one quote, that one phrase from the New Testament, and then looking back at the Psalm in the Old Testament, just opened up whole new possibilities for all sorts of things for me about why Jesus was saying that, right? So that one, that was a really good one for me to think about. All right, let's move on to a little lighter of a topic The next one, God helps those who help themselves. I'm sure we've heard this one many times and we know there's some truth in it, Um, but how much and where does it come from and all these kinds of things. So where did this one come from? It can actually be found in lots of different places. The original might be in one of Aesop's fables. And I mentioned Aesop's fables for another one. In case you didn't know, like me, Aesop was a Greek storyteller who lived in the 600s BC. So this is a little bit before the fall of Judah and Jerusalem to Babylon. Assyria had already taken the northern tribes. So we're in the middle of like deep, dark (laughs) Israelite history that it's not so good. All right, so that's Aesop's time period. And we really don't know much about the guy, and many of the stories that are attributed to him uh, might have been written by others, but whatever, it's not the point I'm trying to get to right now. 
So one of the stories that is attributed to him is about a guy that is driving his wagon along on a muddy road and it gets stuck in the mud. And I think the story goes that he just keeps on beating his donkey or horse or whoever's pulling the cart and the donkey or horse just can't get the wagon out of the mud. And he just keeps on beating the donkey and it can't move. And so he kneels down, this guy that's driving the wagon, he kneels down and asks the Greek gods for help. He's praying to Greek gods. And Hercules appears and says, get up, man. The gods, (laughs) here it is, help those who help themselves. And I found it in a couple other um, Greek mythologies or Greek fables. So it might have been a common story. But then Benjamin Franklin repopularized the saying in the 1750s, and it was in a couple of almanacs. So it's appeared in quite a few other places and a few other ways through history, Greek stories, almanacs, and in the Quran, the Muslim Quran. So it's pretty ancient, but definitely not even originally Christian at all. So what's similar in the Bible? Why do we think this is a biblical idea? There are some proverbs that talk about work and not being lazy, but it's not exactly the same as God only helping those who try to dig themselves out of their own troubles. So I found a few verses that talk about uh, being diligent, being a hard worker, not being lazy. So I'm just going to read them. Proverbs 12, 24, diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. Proverbs 13, 4, A sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And then a very similar idea is James 2.26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Basically, do what you say, not just say it. So this is probably the one that is the most confusing out of all of our phrases here, and the one that seems like it should be in the Bible, which is why I went through those verses. But bottom line, there is no express statement in the Bible that says anything about people needing to help themselves before God acts on anything. There's other principles. There's the principle of working hard and providing for those who are kind of in your care. Those are principles that the Bible does say, yes, those are good. Do that. But us being our own best resource is very much opposite to the teachings of the Bible. God is our source of help. We just need to ask. But then he might tell us to work. Um, But God is the source of the wisdom to know what to do and when to do it. The Bible does not say don't try to help yourself. But if you're doing it without God's wisdom and guidance you might just be plowing yourself into the ground anyway. So basically, you need God's wisdom and guidance, and then you need to do. All right, last one, quiet time. This is another Protestant term, not so much evangelical, but yeah, pretty, you know, okay, it's evangelical. Evangelical Protestant, and it means devotional time spent praying or reading the Bible or both. The general idea is that you spend a certain amount of time each day focusing on God and, you know, a couple different ways that you can do that. Now, what's in the Bible is lots of references in the Bible to meditating on the word of God. So I have three for you here. Joshua 1.8 says, 
Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Psalm 1-2 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And then there's Luke 18-1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Okay, so we know from the Bible (laughs) that we should know the Bible, study it, obey it, and should pray continually. But where does the phrase, the term quiet time come from? And the idea that you should spend a certain dedicated time in prayer and Bible reading, preferably early in the morning. Is that specifically biblical? Nope. (laughs) Through history, there have been many different methods for how to basically spend time praying and meditating. Because if you think about it, personal reading of the Bible was only possible by most of the human population after about the 1500s. Before that, before the printing press, before movable type, a family, an individual family, probably didn't own their own Bible. So prayer would have been important, meditating on what you know from the Bible, maybe reciting passages from the Bible, but not everybody would have been able to pick up their own Bible and read it. And that's partly from accessibility, but also from literacy. Because writing and printed materials were not widespread, there wasn't as much to read. People were not nearly as literate. That and just accessibility to education and having the time to be educated, it was a luxury for sure. So there have been different models and ideals for how to spend time in prayer and at least meditating on the Bible through history and in different traditions. More traditional parts of Christianity have more (laughs) traditional models, surprise. Uh, Catholics, Anglicans, and Lutherans have very structured ways, such as the Anglican use of the Book of Common Prayer to have daily prayers, and it has suggested Bible readings that go along with them. And then Catholics and Anglicans may use prayer beads that help structure their prayers. So other Protestant denominations don't have as much tradition or structure to rely on. And so there's way more variety in personal devotional time, how that's done, how that's structured. So general terms for that time that a person could spend in prayer and reading the Bible or meditating, there's a lot of general terms for that. Quiet time is one of them. There's also devotional time, sacred time, and meditation time. The term quiet time was only introduced in the late 1800s and popularized in the 1940s. An evangelical organization that you may have heard of, and I was actually a part of it in college, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, they wrote a pamphlet promoting quiet time, and other college organizations picked it up and promoted it too. The idea just kind of took off from there. It was a way to think about how to spend time meditating on God, prayer to God. Um, But there's been so many different ways to do that through history. And I think it should be reassuring to us that everybody (laughs) throughout history has been trying to figure out how should we do this? How can we organize our time? How can we discipline ourselves to pray? How can we remain focused to pray and meditate on the things of God. Many people struggle with this, with how to do their quiet time, 
how to pray consistently, what to pray about, what to read in the Bible, how to read it. Uh, I, I know so many people that have a hard time with this. And if you're one of them, don't be ashamed, please. <laughs> That's the first step is don't be ashamed because this is a harder task than it, it looks like. It looks like it should be so easy. Basically, quiet time, the term quiet time came about to try and help people organize that time. But it is not a biblical term. It is not straight out of the Bible. Okay, so there you go, guys. There's our things that are and are not in the Bible. Shoot me an email. Let me know how you did on that quiz. If there was anything that especially stood out to you um, that was surprising that you thought would be in the Bible but wasn't. And I wish I could pull you guys and ask so that I could share it on our Q&A episode. So enough of, if enough of you do that, I'll do that. I'll share the results with you guys. Okay, so we're going to stop there. I hope you guys have a great day and I'll talk to you again next time. Bye. Bye.